Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amapadon. Thanks for tuning in. Northeastern University is making major strides in the world of science and research with its newest facility, the EXP Building. This week, Northeastern University cut the ribbon for the newest research and STEM building on campus, and state leaders and educators gathered to commemorate the significance of its grand opening. The EXP building is an incredible example of what's still to come. It is an example of what investment in this state-of-the-art laboratories can mean for medical advancements. It is an investment in what lives can be saved, thanks to advancements that students here make in robotics. It is investment in what knowledge we can acquire about the oceans or outer space with the new equipment here. This building, as you heard, is not an end by itself. And what is success? Success is going to be quantified by the impact that we have with our community, on our community, the impact that we have on the city, the impact we have on the Commonwealth and on the nation. And this impact is not going to be decided by Northeastern. It's going to be decided by the priorities and unfortunately the crisis that we are going to face constantly. So we are here today not to celebrate a building, but to celebrate a commitment for a better world. And this is something that will endure for many, many generations to come. The 350,000 square foot research center provides teaching and research labs, classrooms, dedicated space for innovative work in autonomous vehicles, drones and robots, a cafe, and a faculty club. The EXP building will continue the university's mission of creating a globally networked ecosystem for research, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Particularly in this moment, when Boston's biotech and life sciences industries are accelerating and there are openings to be filled, we want to ensure that it is our residents, our young people, stepping into these positions, not just to benefit from this growth, but to drive it. You will plant the seeds for new companies and new branches of industry, and that is so, so exciting. You will educate the next generation of STEM leaders uh, that's the ultimate investment in our future, and today I think it's appropriate as we celebrate the first day of STEM week in Massachusetts. I can't think of a better place to be than right here as we encourage students to literally see themselves in STEM. EXP will allow students and researchers to network, connect, and collaborate as it unites knowledge and perspective. The EXP House will have leading-edge research facilities, modern, multifunctional spaces for students, staff, and faculty to turn ideas into reality. Groundbreaking discoveries, immersive learning experiences, and research partnerships spring to life within this state-of-the-art, and it is truly state-of-the-art, eight-story building. And we know that this will have a meaningful impact on the research pursuits of Northeastern students. You are truly building up our scholars so that they can go on and build up this world. 
But Northeastern isn't the only school advancing in the scientific field, with exciting new developments coming out of Brighton High School. <laughs> Five new STEM labs opened at Brighton High School last Thursday. These labs feature $3 million in new equipment, electrical upgrades, and furniture, and they offer the support which Brighton High School students need to pursue their STEM careers. It's really transformative uh, for our science education. Uh, you're in one of the biology labs. Um, we have a new chemistry lab as well. Um, and with the importance of STEM education and the work that we're doing to prepare students for the future, for current and future uh, careers in STEM, um, this, the, 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 the support of the labs is just, it's a game changer for us. This is the product uh, in very wonderful up upgrading of our science labs here in Brighton High School. Uh, it's a tremendous investment in our young people and it will pay dividends going forward because I think we're preparing our young people to take advantage of a, a changing work environment, uh, 21st century opportunities that are available in life sciences and all the other areas of science. BPS believes that STEM is supported and enriched by inquiry and literacy. Easier and better access to STEM equipment and facilities are essential, and these brand new labs will be able to offer students real-life STEM experiences. Okay. These new labs have improved me and my classmates' learning because of the new equipment, more space to do projects, and to keep it organized. So with the new tables and more space, there's better experiments to feel like we are in a real lab, having our own space, being able to work as like we are real scientists. Boston Public Schools partnered with outside organizations and businesses in order to make all this work. IQHG provided funding for the design and construction of the new labs. One of the things that's very important to us in the Boston Public Schools is to ensure that our students have access to high quality instructional materials and learning opportunities. And one of those things is to ensure that our students have access to advanced coursework, particularly in STEM. We know in order for our students to be able to access that type of material, innovative uh, programs such as Project Lead the Way, they need to also have facilities that match. All too often in Boston Public Schools, we have not delivered on a promise of high quality facilities that match the ambitious teaching that's happening across the city of Boston. And I think one of the things that Brighton has done using ESSER funds and with support from both the city and the school district is to ensure that they have facilities that now match the innovative academic programming that, that our students deserve. Our students deserve to have the best. It's their time. This week, a Boston school system got a little bit greener with the addition of 10 new outdoor garden classrooms. On Tuesday, Superintendent Mary Skipper joined Boston Public School teachers and students to celebrate the opening of a new outdoor classroom at Boston Greenway Academy. Students now have the opportunity to be outside and get a sense of relievement and enjoyment. Instead of looking at the same classroom walls and tables, they get to see changing trees, flowers, and chirping birds. Although this is the only year that I will be in the outdoor classroom, I am very happy that BGA will continue to bear fruits to many generations to come. Green in our garden means um, sustainable food that we can put on our table for those in need, not only our families, who are biologic to us, but the families that are in our school with us, because we have to work together to cause a change in our health. 
The Brighton Outdoor Classroom joins 10 new raised bed garden programs spread across Boston's public schools. Kids growing up in the city often get fewer opportunities to uh, have direct contact with nature and nature-based learning. And it's really important to be able to um, connect directly with plants and other living things as you're learning about um, the cycles of nature and the importance of sustainability. And so we're excited to have um, you know, as many opportunities as we can for kids to learn in, right in the city where they live. In addition to building these green spaces, Grow Boston and Green City Growers also provide weekly education classes for students to learn about tending to plants and being environmentally conscious. Gardens like this build a real strong sense of community. They let kids from the city know where food is from, how it's grown. You make good, nutritious decisions. But more importantly, I think it, it does build teamwork and an attachment. So you'll have an attachment to this school, you'll learn things that you'll do the rest of your life, and you'll have attachments to your neighborhood, your community. A major goal of these programs is to have the students see the role that sustainability must play in their lives. We want our students to be able to connect their own lives to the urban environment and think about sustainability. So when they look at trees, when they look at nature, when they look at pollinators, think about how it interacts with their lives and how we can make those things more sustainable in Boston. Even after these kids blossom into adulthood, they'll never be too far from their roots. It's finally happening. The Dorchester Food Co-op has officially opened and is ready to serve the people of Dorchester however it can. After 10 years of community efforts, the Dorchester Food Co-op opened its doors, making it Boston's only community and worker-owned food co-op. The store is dedicated to providing fresh, healthy, and sustainable food options, while supporting local farmers and producers, reducing food waste, and highlighting equitable access and economic opportunities to neighborhood residents. One of the most important things about the co-op for me is its ability to draw people together. And we have folks from all over, all over the globe that work here, from the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Cape Verde, Somalia, all over, myself from Guam. And so the ability for all of us to work together around this common mission of getting good, healthy, nutritious food out into the community in a way that is respectful to the individuals that we're serving and the products and the, the vendors that provide us with those goods. The store hopes to bring together its Dorchester neighbors with community-oriented food staples, as well as ready-to-eat meals, a cafe, community meeting space, complimentary fresh herbs, and a microwave for heating up items purchased with SNAP. Items in the bulk department can be portioned and taken home in reusable containers. And the store's commitment to healthy options means none of their products contain high-fructose corn syrup. The co-op has tried very hard to make this a, a meeting space for folks and um, we really want to build a sense of community of the shoppers here, the people who are part of the, the co-op itself and, and even folks who are not members but who want to have a place to meet and, and have really a community focused uh, like shop and, and cafe in the front. It was really important for us to be a community to make some decisions about the type of foods that would be um, in the store. It really brings a level of community engagement and also give us the opportunity to, um, to really be in charge, right? Um, to have agency 
um, to ensure that we're getting the foods that we would like to see in our community. Shoppers are offered membership, which makes them a part owner, giving them the option to vote on major initiatives and co-op board elections. Members also have access to discounts and bulk ordering, as well as a share in the store's profits at the end of the year. And certainly there's a way to be able to match up the cultural context of this community um, with, with the produce, with the products, uh, and with the service. Uh, many of the folks who uh, are here at the co-op who are working come from this neighborhood and come from this community. So when I, when I say ownership, um, I, I really mean that there's an investment from the community and an investment from the co-op that matches up. The one-time payment membership also offers financial aid and installation options so that anyone in the community can become a co-owner. Currently, the co-op is 1,724 households strong, representing almost 4,000 people. Just the other day, I was talking to the manager and asked about any product, and he assured me I was coming in. You're not going to get that in a big store. And I, and I know that the people who shop here, who are members here, the workers here, they're all part of the neighborhood, which means the money's staying here, which is very important to me. Return of profits and discounts for community owners an abundance of local farm-fresh food, a gathering place for the community. The Dorchester Food Co-op is a clean sweep for all. To learn more about how to become a Dorchester Food Co-op owner, dorchesterfoodcoop.com. Reparations. What are they, what do they look like, and how would they benefit the people of Boston? These were the topics of conversation at Repair Reparations Elevation, the Poetry Slam event at Comfort Kitchen, and BNN was there to take it all in. In Upham's Corner's Comfort Kitchen, poets and spoken word artists started a dialogue through art about the future generations of their people and why reparations are in order. This is an opportunity for people to be educated as to what reparations are and also use the spoken word, use entertainment, using singing as a form of getting the word out. Now, if you notice when it comes to reparations in the past, sometimes you see the same faces and sometimes those sort of older folks. So this is an idea tonight to let the younger generation, new generation of new ideas, new thoughts, new ways of presenting reparations, uh, giving them a chance to do it. A joint presentation from the Boston People's Reparations Commission and the New Democracy Coalition, Repair Reparations Elevation, filled hearts and minds. Spoken word artist and motivational speaker Mathematics hosted the evening. Through poetry and rap, he's created a new image for himself, centered on giving back to his community. Reparations for me means um, me going out into my community and repairing, you know, the places I sold drugs, going back and helping. Reparations also means holding, you know, the people accountable for slavery so that we can get some things back. I don't think it all has to revolve around, or revolve around money. I think it's important to have school education in place, um, systems in place that can help us elevate as a people. Cities like San Francisco and Chicago are exploring what reparations may look like to people who've been affected by systemic racism and the long-lasting effects of the transatlantic slave trade. And now, Mayor Wu's new reparations task force is taking on the challenge of shaping the future of Boston's communities. Because it's not just about a check. You know, it's, money is going to alleviate and help some problems, but it's our future that we need to be concerned with. 
it's not just having money now, it's what are we going to do for future generations just like those past generations that have suffered. If there's any people who need to know what's going on with it, it's us. We don't want reparations defined for us. Reparations are going to be for us defined by what we feel we want, what we deserve. But we're only going to know that if we know that we're unified in the cause of moving forward. It's a conversation that reparations advocates believe the youth should be part of, and that intent was reflected in the young artists who were part of the lineup. It was, it was very good to know that there's, there's people on your side, and it's good to represent yourself knowing that you're comfortable in your own skin. We've lost confidence, determination, effort, love, respect, and sincerity of soul. We can't afford to keep traveling this road. So let's get our act together, desiring to be straight. The time is way overdue, no longer can we wait. So reparations, when we get that, when we get our due, both the financial and the land, we can begin, because it's a long road, because we're talking 400 years and counting of not having what, we, what was stolen from us. And so it will also, I believe, unify our, our, our communities of color, right? Because when we do more events like this and show the, the, the level of talent and the level of consciousness, we can each do our part in, in, in advocating for reparations um, and just basically, and I say biblical justice because that's the best justice, but social, economic, racial justice, it, it comes with when we get reparations as people of African descent, we can, we can begin to get back. And then that can be the impetus for us to start to unify as a community and start um, doing the mindset shift because nothing is gonna change unless we, um, unless we do the mindset shift and start to interact with each other on a more holistically healthy level. Over the weekend, more than 80 vegan and vegetarian businesses showcased their food, cosmetic, and clothing products at the 28th annual Boston Veg Food Festival. BNN's Jennifer Small has more. Several business owners of plant-based companies and restaurants sold their products and gave out samples of food at the Boston Veg Food Festival in Roxbury Community College. Josh Velasquez, founder of Shires Naturals, says the Boston Veg Food Festival helped bring his products to major supermarkets across the country. So this show has been really, really important for us from day one. So this is how we got into Whole Foods and Market Basket. Every time we've come here with a new product, they've helped us open doors. A 2023 Wallet Hub survey of the best cities for vegans and vegetarians ranked Boston as one of the worst cities in the U.S. for plant-based living. Out of 100 cities surveyed, Boston came in 87th. Vegetarian Amsa Takili says she wishes there were more plant-based options in the city. And it's honestly pretty hard to find, just like vegan, honestly just find vegetables in general near me. I kind of wish there were more like street markets or just more places I could get fresh fruits. The Boston Vegetarian Society hosted the festival in hopes to replace animal products with plant-based products because the group says it benefits health and the environment. Food is meant to nourish and bring us together. We're looking to bring everyone to the table, whether you're vegan or not. Just come and sit at our table and enjoy our great food. The Boston Vegetarian Society has resources on its website, bostonveg.org, for those looking to learn more about a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle. 
Reporting from Roxbury Community College, I'm Jennifer Small for BNN. What do you think of when you hear James Bond, Pierce Brosnan, Daniel Craig, a white guy in a tuxedo? Well, what if we told you that the iconic 007 agent was based off of a Dominican man named Porfirio Rubirosa? He was a diplomat, race car driver, soldier, and a spy for the Dominican dictator Rafael Trujillo. The iconic character was removed from his Latin origins and whitewashed for international appeal. But artists like Christopher Rivas haven't forgotten the Dominican beginnings. We invited Rivas to the studio to discuss the process of his newest show, The Real James Bond Was Dominican, opening November 8th at the Emerson Paramount Center, and the impact that Rubirosa had on his identity as a Dominican man in a white-centric world. Enjoy the interview. Your one-man show, The Real James Bond, was Dominican is opening uh, November 8th and it's playing through the 12th over at Arts Emerson at the Paramount Center. Can you tell me a little bit about why you wanted to create this show? Yeah, I, I don't know that I wanted to as much as I, I had to. Uh, I had read this story in Vanity Fair about this man named Porfirio Rubirosa, this Dominican man who lived all over the world, was twice the richest man in the world when he was married to Barbara Hutton and Doris Duke. and had this insane life followed by the FBI for 17 years, best friends with Sinatra, Kennedy, and of course Ian Fleming, the writer of James Bond. And mm -hmm. so I went down this rabbit hole where I was like, how, how if I'm Dominican, you know, how is my parents or my father never told me about this person? Mm -hmm. how, how does this go unnoticed, this like really incredible man who has flaws like all of us, you know? Right. Uh, and so I just kept going in the rabbit hole and writing and writing and writing and I felt like I needed to share that with the world and then the piece that came out of it was less this piece about him and as much as it is a piece about identity you know Rubirosa was a man who was obsessed with being seen you know with with being chosen with not having his name be forgotten uh, and then and then Bond was sort of taken from his identity and so his identity was lost to time yeah hmm. And it's so crazy because when you talk about Bond, the 007 agent, everybody knows who he is, but... A white British dude. A white British dude. But when we say Rubirosa, um, that name isn't immediate, immediately identifiable. What do you make of the fact that people don't know him? If it is identified, you know, uh, maybe by some of the Dominicans listening, it's, um, it's for being a playboy. You know, that's, that's one thing he was known for, you know, the, the world's greatest and last living playboy. But he was so much more than that. And his story is so much deeper and sadder and profound than that. What do I make of his name being lost to history? You know, whether it's Ruby Rosa or someone else, I think all of our, all bodies of culture have so many heroes that have been taken by time hmm. and, and, and not shared in a biopic like, like whiteness has gotten. And so I think this is one of many, many, uh, brilliant stories that we need in our cultures to remind us of our geniuses um, and our our medicine but also like you know our warnings of things we should be careful of hmm. one man shows are an incredible feat it's a lot of work can you talk to us a little bit about the process of putting together this this experience yeah, so I like to call it a two-man show. There is an incredible live percussionist on stage with me hmm. uh, who is making the sounds, who is like absolute genius. Uh, the score was written by the same person who did the uh, drum line for In the Heights, 
Wilson Torres. So that's pretty dope. Uh, so I like to think of it as a two-person show. Uh, I, is it an incredible feat? Maybe. It feels <laughs> like... <laughs> Thank you. I'll take it. Um, I just, it's the way I had to tell the story because it is such a personal story. Um, this man changed my life. You know, his spirit uh, kind of haunted me, not in a scary way, but like in a true way. And I knew I had to tell his story and I was sort of chosen to tell this story and to tell our story. And so that's what I got. Mm. And in the show, you do talk about your upbringing growing up as a young Dominican boy in New York. What advice would you give your younger self? So this morning, I was reading an old journal I have, because uh, I realized some pages were left. And, and I was looking back, and this is an old journal from 2018, and I was like, damn, 2018 Chris is still wanting the things 2023 Chris is working for. You mm -hmm. know, this, this perseverance, this, this love of oneself. And so this show at the end of the day is, is really one of knowing, are we enough? You know, uh, am I enough? And so I would tell younger, Chris, you are enough, just as you are. You are complete you are whole. Um, you know, I would tell any young person watching, like, you are enough. You are complete. You are whole. Uh, you don't need to do anything else. You are perfect as you are. Thank you for saying that. And I think enough, I think that's a beautiful transition to the book that yeah. you also wrote, Brown Enough, uh, that was published last November 2022. Uh, New York Times, uh, they wrote an article featuring uh, a chapter of the book. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the book and why, why it was important for you to, to write it? Yeah, so I, uh, again, it's, 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 like a, it's like a have to. Um, Brown Enough was born, and New York Times actually uh, took a scene from the play that, you, that you're gonna see. Uh, they took a scene from the play and they put it in the modern love section and went completely viral. Mm -hmm. And then all these people reached out to me and they said, you know, is there a book in you? And I was like, there is no book in me. <laughs> and then over time, you know, I'd written more and got a bunch of essays published. And I said, you know, there is a book in me. Like I'm, I'm constantly exploring what it means to be brown in this black, white world. We live in such a binary world, this, that, he, she, yes, no, right, wrong. What does it look like to, ex to expand our being in a more fluid way, mm. you know? Uh, Identity is not this thing you can put in a box, you know, especially if you're Latino or Latinx. There isn't one box that can contain, you know, the 36 countries that we are. Uh, and, so, and so this book was born of that. I explore brownness through many different shades. I explore it in Hollywood as being an actor on TV. I explore it with my student loans, having mad student debt. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, I explore it in love. Uh, I explore when I went to see Ta-Nehisi Coates give a talk and he was talking about black and white and I raised my hand, you know, I said, as a young brown man, where does that leave me in the conversation? And he said, not in it. Hmm. And, so, uh, and so Brown Enough was born and uh, I think it's really beautiful. You can get it wherever you get books. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we'll also have some at the theater. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. See a show, read a book. See a show, read a book. I love that. Um, and you talked about brown people, young brown people, and especially when you think about Hollywood and the industry and representation is a very, uh, very big topic. Um, what advice do you have for young creatives of color who are looking to get into the industry? Oh, make work, tell your story, you know, tell your story. If you, if you, if you wait around, uh, Hollywood will not tell your story. They will tell their idea of what your story is. Uh, and it's not yours. So you have to, you have, to have courage as a young body of culture to, to take back your stories. 
I often say everything is a story, one we've been made to believe or chosen to believe, and knowing the difference is profound. Or there's the, uh, the African proverb, until the lion learns to write, every story will glorify the hunter. This is why the lion must write. Um, mm. And so I would say to young creators, tell your story. You know, uh, I've, I've made a career of telling my story and taking up my own space. And uh, yeah. Wonderful. And you've been performing this show for some time. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure you've evolved and changed every time you've, you've done it. What have you learned most about yourself um, thinking about his story and sharing this show? That's a good question. Um, I do learn more every time. And I think every time something I do is I, when I started, I was like enamored by this man. I was like, whoa, so cool, no, 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 no. Like I have to do this so he's remembered. Uh, and, then I, and then I sort of, it's like an unfalling in love. It's like a reverse love story. Mm. Uh, I think life is always presenting us with opportunities to meet people who show us what we can become and what we shouldn't become. And I think Ruby Rosa was both for me. He was an example of, of where I was going if I was so desperate to be seen and accepted by Hollywood. Um, and he's an example of how I can choose to love myself and show up for myself so as not to get lost in the sauce. That's our broadcast for tonight. For BNN News, I'm Faith the Mathedon, and I'll see you next Friday.